Welcome to our podcast, We Are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for another conversation about some of our favorite films. Before we delve in, let's see what Nick's been watching lately. Aha. Uh-huh. Where did so we left last week? We left with um, Man and Bogart, didn't we? Yes. Um, yeah, just trying to track where I am on my uh, on my letterboxed diary. So I saw um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, How was that? Starring it's. <sighs> I need to stop saying that I've just seen the best film of the year because, like, you know two months down the line another film will come on and be like this is the best this is the best this is the best film of the year um yeah i so i really really like doctor strange in the multiverse of madness and but what if i was to have like any kind of you know qualms with it it would be the fact that they didn't really do much with the multiverse I think that's more to do with the fact that it's a big, you know, blockbuster. You know, they can't really go too weird with it. Everything, everywhere, all at once does something with the multiverse that I haven't, I didn't think of before. I didn't think, oh, that that's a really interesting idea. Um, I really don't want to give anything away because whoever's listening and to you, Danny, I really just want you to go see it without knowing anything. Really. Okay. Okay, I I might um, just do that because I'm a big fan of Benedict Cumberbatch, but I've not seen Doctor Strange, uh, like the no, first no, movie. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about Multiverse of Madness. I'm talking about everything. Oh, everywhere, everything. All at oh, okay. Once. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thanks for not spoiling um, it because I would like to see that. Yes, go and see it, um, please, so we can actually have a conversation about it. Um, and then I kind of just went through some stuff that popped up on Netflix and Disney Plus. So I watched uh, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Yay. Um do you do you do you remember watching the Rescue Rangers? No. TV show cartoon? No. no? no. It's a Disney cartoon for, uh, in the early 90s that ran for like two seasons. Um the Chip and Dale it had a really catchy theme song as they all do. Anyway, this like this this Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers film um it's uh, it's written by the Lonely Island guys, directed by the Lonely Island guys. Um, Andy Samberg voices Dale, uh, John Mulaney voices Chip, and it takes place like thirty years after the TV series show show came out. And it's kind of it's like a Roger Rabbit thing, where like the cartoon, the tunes, and the the humans kind of live together in this, you know, amalgamation of Hollywood. Um, it's really good. Um, you know, it could quite have easily have been a, a cash-in kind of thing. You know, I remember when I said about um, Space Jam, A New Legacy, where it was, that was like, you know, it was soulless. It was, you know, you're not doing anything with the IP. You're not, you know, it's just yeah. a, a money kind. This is the complete opposite. Um, I said the best comparison I can think of is is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It has a okay. pretty good 
mystery to it. It's really funny in places. Some of the jokes are, are going to go over kids' heads, which you know is always a, a plus in my book. Um, there are references to things that I didn't expect to be referenced in a Disney Plus movie, but I, I point that towards the fact that it's the Lonely Island guys. Um, and then uh, on Netflix, um, Jackass 4.5 uh, popped up. Oh, dear. Um, I'm a big fan of, as, as everybody knows, big fan of the Jackass movies. Saw Jackass Forever in the cinema and had the loudest, loud, hardest side laugh, laughed in the cinema for a long time. Um, 4.5. So the Jackass movies, they have, um, they do like the normal Jackass movie and then they do 1.5, or 2.5, 3.5. And they basically just put all the outtakes into like a, a straight to DVD movie. 4.5 kind of takes a different tact in that it has all those like the ones that didn't make the film. But the ones that didn't make the film are as good as the ones that actually were in the movie. And there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff, which they hadn't done before, where they're talking to the camera about coming back after 10 years away, um, you know, bringing on new people to, to you know, fuck around with um, their ideas for the stunts, what worked, what didn't work. And it's a really, really interesting behind the scenes look at, at to how they how they done it. Um very very funny i i'm not gonna get you to watch it am i no <laughs> no sorry no <sighs> um and then hopefully a film that i can get you to watch uh is apollo ten and a half a space age childhood um does this film ring your bells to you no um directed by richard linklater a uh, new Richard Linklater movie popped up on Netflix, and as per with stuff that pops up on Netflix, it kind of comes on and and with no fanfare. So there is a Richard, a new Richard Linklater movie, and which uh, you know, ten years ago would have been, oh yes, there's an you know, think about it, you know, he 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 uh, yeah. he got all those all that shit for you know, he got all the acclaim for Boyhood, and and now he's got a movie that just pops up on Netflix. And it's no one, really no one good. announced it. Okay. Yeah. It's really, really good. It's about um, so it's a um, so Jack Black um, narrates the story of his life as a ten-year-old boy living in 1969 Houston, and he's kind of talking about him growing up and talking about like what it was like to grow up in 1969 Houston, and then it's interweaved with this story about him as a ten-year-old being recruited by NASA because they built the lunar module too small, so they had to test it before they did the Apollo 11 mission. Interesting. Um, the the animation style is done in the same way, like Scanner Darkly and Waken Life, but not oh, yeah. as... Not as it's, it's not rotoscoped. It's, it's, it's kind of... It's a bit cleaner than that. Um, 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 when you look at still images, it looks a bit kind of a bit naff, but it in movement and the way it moves and stuff, it's really, really quite cool. And it allows Linklater to do some interesting things when it comes to all the space age stuff. Um, really kind of capture that sense of, you know, nostalgia. Um, I, I loved it. Um, it, it's, it really, it really hit that sweet spot with me. Um, you know, I love movies about space age, you know, especially anything to do with the Apollo missions. That's like crack to me. And um, I like the, uh, you know, anything about, you know, 
kids kind of talking, you know, going through this kind of thing, you know, is it's just, you know, especially when it's well as well done as this, it's really, really good. Um yeah, so I thoroughly recommend it. It's about ninety it's about just under hundred minutes and it's it's I think it's well worth anybody's time. Um Yeah. Uh Apollo ten and a half. Uh Space Age Childhood. I I really recommend that. Really, really recommend it. Um and then I'm I'm not gonna say anymore because I'm looking at my diary and the next film I watched after that was a film that I've now decided is never gonna be spoken of ever again. Um I think it's best for me to just never talk about it. I I'm I, I've seen it, that's it, that's the end of it. Um <laughs> and that's it. I think I'm okay. I I I could just I I don't want to go into a whole thing about it because it's just it's pointless. And I'm Good. probably going to have to end up writing I'm I'm going to have to end up writing a piece on it anyway because it's going to be incorporated in with my dissertation. Um <sighs> uh so yeah, that's uh Let's move on. Um, Danny, what did uh, what did you watch? So I went to the cinema quite a f- quite a bit lately. I went last Friday and I went to see Vampire, which is a film by um, Carl Theodor Dreyer, the Danish director, and it was amazing. It's a very it's it's a short film. It's like an hour and fifteen minutes, but it's what surrealist films should be. Like it's just really really eerie and amazing at the same time and scary and but really like i mean you've seen the passion of john of arc yeah yeah it's that's it's a bit like that i mean it's not like that but you see you know that the the technique and you know the style of, of direction that he has so it's really like a dream within a dream within a nightmare kind of thing it's very surrealist horror and yeah it's just really atmospheric so it was the 90 year anniversary of the film and because it came out in 1932 i think so yeah it was really good and speaking of 1932 i saw the a arms at the bfi Helen Hayes and um, Gary Cooper, based on a Hemingway novel. And it was, um, well, let's just say that it's very nice to see Gary Cooper on the big screen. <laughs> the film is, is that, okay. Is, is yeah, that, I was going to say, is like, that like a comment on the film itself? or? Well, there's a lot of really good um, close-ups of, of Gary Cooper. <laughs> Uh, the film itself is good, but I think it ma- it misses quite a lot of stuff from the novel because I mean it was it, it is a pre code, but at the same time you you couldn't film certain stuff as well. So yeah, it's a good film. Uh, Adolf Menjou plays a really good role as well, and a uh, Frank Borzage directs it, and he he has he has good eye for close ups and he has good eye for. for blocking as well so it's 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 an interesting film to see on the big screen i um i've been watching this uh, this is related 
I have been I've been watching some episodes of Family Guy because um, it's all on Disney Plus, and you know I need something to watch on in the background. An episode I saw the other day was um, so Peter had just had his both of his arms amputated. He's in the hospital, and the doctor comes up to him and says, "I got some bad news, but it's best if you if it's best if I give you if I, if I, if I, if I were to describe what's happened." And he's holding up the farewell <laughs> to arms, and Peter says, um, "And Peter says, what I'm going to have a, a love affair with a World War One nurse." <laughs> um, no, you're just gonna have your very... limbs amputated. <laughs> the, the the hit the hit to miss ratio with 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 Family Guy episodes is is quite skewed one way, um, but then when it does hit, it you know you do get stuff like that, and then obviously you get the the faint the the, the great reference in um, Evil Dead Two where you know Ash has just chopped off his hand and sticks the hand on underneath the bucket and then puts. A farewell to arms the book on top of the bucket uh the bucket and it's it's the best thing ever um i have you have you read the book i i um, no i haven't i've not, I've, I've not read any hemingway um, um we did um the old man and the sea at school right um which was okay painful was slightly painful for a for a teenage a girl to do do that because it's a lot of there's a lot of philosophy life affirmations and life you know the whole life itself is 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 a metaphor like the whole book is a metaphor of life and you you kind of miss it when you're 17 did question i mean like did you read that in english or, or in romanian in english english in english okay Yes, we. Um, I I still have it. I think the book is still on my mum's bookcase. So I um we did it in English. Most of the stuff that we did in in school in the English class, we did it in English, like Tess of the Dubervilles, Pride and Prejudice, Macbeth. Huh. Oh, okay. Okay. We I, what, I, I, what we didn't do in English, which which was a bit of a pity, I think, because I probably would have liked to have read it in English. Was the catcher in the rye? Oh right, yeah. No, I, I, I started that was, reading that. That was done in Romanian, unfortunately. I started reading that when I was like twenty one, twenty two, and I got halfway through the book, and I was like, "Fuck you, Holden," and just <laughs> put the book down. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I mean, I, I might have been, you know, I, I wouldn't say too young. To read to read it, but like I I wasn't on the same wavelength as what Holden was. I I didn't I wasn't picking up on the no you know the the hit you know the stuff underneath all the all the you know the, what was going on. But yeah, um, maybe on do a reread of Catcher in the Rye. I think this is a good segue into our conversation because we were t- we will be talking about a film that's based on a book, on a very yeah, good book, book that we've we've got book reports, haven't we? We've got book reports. We have book reports. Uh, before we delve into that, I one final note for me. I rewatched The Witch uh, at the Prince Charles Cinema, and it was good. First time like on the big screen, isn't it? Deliciously, this life. Yeah, well, it was at the Prince Charles Cinema, so it was on the big screen. And um, uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm, but my point was like in 2016, you didn't see it in the cinema. I did not see it in the, no, no, I only saw it. I think it's on Netflix, so I only saw it like a month ago for the first time. So now that I saw it, it was screening at the Prince Charles, I was like, I'm going to see Black Philip on the big screen. 
your your opinion hasn't changed of uh, Anya Taylor Joy. Not really. I think there's I think there's scenes where she's okay, but there's other scenes that she's very distractingly bad. I don't think she she's learned to cry properly, and yeah. I think the witch was one of her first film roles. Yeah, I yeah, which is fine. Um, good. I mean, she's okay. I don't dislike her. I just don't care for her that much. Sorry, 20, 20, 2015 The Witch came out. I mean, the only other Eggers movie you need to see then is is The Lighthouse, um, yes. which doesn't star Anya Taylor Joy. Um, God for that. <laughs> and I have I, I I do have I do have a feeling that you're gonna love that one the most. Well, I think I will I will keep an eye on it um for it because I would like to see that on the big screen as well. Yeah, and I think I they might it have it at screen. the Prince Charles. They might they might screen it at the Prince Charles. Yeah, just keep rubbing that in. Um. <laughs> oh, I will. Don't yeah, you worry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So All let's right. go back to the book report, shall we? Yeah, book reports. Um, let's, let's, let's introduce the film first. Yes. Um, so the first film that we'll be discussing today is 1940's The Grapes of Wrath, directed by John Ford, based on the John Steinbeck novel. Here's a quick synopsis. An Oklahoma family driven off their farm by the poverty and hopelessness of the Dust Bowl joins the westward migration to California suffering the misfortunes of the homeless in the Great Depression. Nick, take it away. Right, so this is as much preparation I've done for a film on this podcast since I decided to watch all those um, early 2000s historical epics when we did Troy. Um, oh, yes. Gropes of Wrath. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'd much rather do that again than reread Gropes of Wrath. Um, so I read of Mice and Men at school, um, uh, for GCSE English. Um, I still have my copy somewhere with all my, you know, pencil writings and stuff on it. And, and then once I was done with of Mice and Men when I was 16, I just, I just put it down. I was like, I'm never reading this ever again. Cut to about six months ago when Danny says, oh, we should do Grips of Wrath on the podcast. And I was like, okay, yeah, John Steinbeck, I'll, I'll reread of Mice and Men. And I forgot how utterly bleak that book is. Um, But the thing about of Mice and Men is it's very short. It's very short. Very easy to read, very short, but there's a lot of stuff in it. Grips of Wrath, on the other hand, is 500 pages of just sheer bleakness. Um, yes. The book itself... So this is this is the book. The book itself is, 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 is fucking amazing in that it really effectively conveys how how it was for people and it, i'm not just talking about the jodes i'm talking about because what the, the what the book does it it sep- it takes out chapters in which it gives like a, literally a slice of life or uh, information something that yeah 
it's information like, that's happened away from the main family. Yeah, it is intertwined, like one chapter in, one chapter out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, yeah, something like that. And it really just gets you kind of in that mindset of how hard people had it in 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 the Great Depression, and the book, I. I finally got round. I finally had some time off on Thursday. The weather wasn't very. Weather was crap here up in Edinburgh, and I was like, "Right, screw it. I've got the afternoon to myself. Um, I'm going to sit and finish Grapes of Wrath." Um, and we're talking 300 pages in one go. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. It the book. The book itself has a very very socialist message in that it's very very centered towards looking at it from the perspective of the people that are suffering and what we need to do to help these people and to not be prejudiced against people that are looking for work you know migrants and what have you um it's a very like i said it's a it's a socialist message i I know I know that there is kind of religious undertones of what's going on, but I'm not I'm you know, I, I don't know you know, I, I don't know my Bible, so it's like that that kind of stuff has just gone over my head. Um The book is yeah, like I said, the the book is you know very, very kind of socialist in its message. Now, the film directed by Republican John Ford, produced by Republican Daryl Zanuck. Um, kind of if I so if I was to look at the film from uh, the adaptation of a book standpoint, so whether it conveys the messages over and outward, you know, if it if it if it you know successfully gives you that you know message that the book gives, it does 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 up to a point so the film what the film does is it uses that family unit of the jodes to basically put to make that family stronger you know unit you know being stronger as a unit as a family more more powerfully than the messages of um worker um exploitation and um you know that kind of thing the film isn't as bleak as the book which thank fuck um the <laughs> <laughs> it also what the film does is it moves events around and what i was kind of surprised with 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 the film is that yes okay the film is 2 hours long but within it, it moved at a pace so i was recognizing you know events that took place in the book like two three hundred pages in i was reckoning these rec seeing these points 45 minutes in an hour in and it was really really hard it was really kind of surprising to see these you know moments take place within such a short frame of time when in the book you know you kind of left to kind of feel the you know the the magnitude of what's going on and and kind of feel the pain after the fact one of I'm not going to say my favourite, but the most compelling sections of the book, in my opinion, 
is everything to do with Rosa Sharon. Um, her story in the book is so heartbreaking. And in the book, she is the heart of the story. Her and Ma are the, is the heart of the story. Um, Tom is more the 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 he'll say the brains, but he is like the protagonist of the story. Whereas Rosa Sharon and Ma, they're they're the they're the heart. And seeing what they you know reading what they go though those two go through, especially Rosa Sharon, like in the book, it really it really hurts. The film sensibly, re- I don't want to say removes, but unless you are paying very, very much attention to what's going on, you are going to miss all the little signs of what's gone on with all the other characters in the book, you know, away from. Because the, what the film does is it kind of just focuses on Tom, Ma, and then to a certain lesser extent, Casey. The rest of the family are almost side characters. There's a whole thing in the in the book about Noah just disappearing down the river. In this, mm. he just like then there's a conversation between him and Tom. In 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 the film, he just disappears. Like he he just there's nothing. Like he just disappears, vanishes. Uh, there's a whole thing to do with Connie and him uh, leaving Rosa Sharon and what's going to happen with them. And that is almost that that has like one line in 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 the film the film moves around the sections of the book so in the book they go from uh hooverville to the government facility and then they go to the cotton field and then the cotton field they go to you know it's this horror the barn and it ends up as a horrible sequence with the flooding and stuff and and what happens after that the film Kind of moves it around, so you end up in Hooverville for a little bit, and then you end up in the government government camp, which is like, you know, it almost almost the film almost ends there, and then you know you have a tiny bit with the government the the cotton thing at the end, um, and then the film just kind of ends after that, you know, it just kind of ends. Yeah. I don't know if I have an issue with that because I feel that the book's ending is very, very much reliant on caring about all the characters that aren't given the time. They aren't given the room to kind of breathe in the film. So it sensibly ends on that Tom and Ma, you know, sec, you know, part that ends there. And yeah. The film, the film is, is, I mean, it, it, you know, it is one of the greatest films ever made. Um, I don't want to say, I don't want to be like, oh yeah, the book, the film isn't doing the book any justice because the book is very, very, very hard to adapt in that. And it does a very, very admirable job and very, 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 very focuses on Tom and Ma in their, you know, essential relationship there. Uh, Henry Fonda, surprise, surprise, is fucking fantastic. Um, I remember I said when we when we did our Ennio Morricone episode that you know that scene where Henry Fonda comes out the weeds in Once Upon a Time in the West, he comes yes. out the grass, and you know it's like the first time you're seeing a man of such evil, and it's like oh it's Henry Fonda, but he has this air about him that you're like Jesus Christ. Yep. The first ten minutes of Grips of Wrath, like it was like 
huh, like he's got that look. Like, you know, he doesn't have the friendly look that you kind of associate with Henry Fonda in like the first 10 minutes of the, of the, of Gropes of Wrath. You know, he's very, very hard edged. Yes. Um, and kind of, uh, abrasive. Um, the Mar the the performance of Mar by um Jane Jane Darwell. Jane Darwell. Kind of so like I said, in the book, Rosa Sharon and Mar are the, the heart of the story. In the film, she obviously takes on all of that basically. The and very, very you feel it. You you really, really do feel it. It's quite surprising to see the important relationships between grandma and grandpa almost come across as, I don't say flippant, but like it's just, it's over and done with very, very quickly. Um, yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite glad that the film didn't end with the stuff with Rosa Sharon, what happens to her in the book. Um, this is this is kind of almost li- this is linked to your your thing about pregnant women not being shown in films because exactly. like unless we were told that Rosa Sharon was pregnant in the film we wouldn't have known about it. Um, oh, yeah. uh, you know it's it it's kind of linked to, it's linked to that in the book you know she's described as very very heavily pregnant at one uh, towards the end of her her, her term, and I think I messaged you I messaged you like like 100 pages before the end and I was like if anything happens to Rosa Sharon's baby I'm I'm fuck you and then 100 pages later I sent you a message saying fuck you cuz <laughs> she loses her baby um in a really yeah. heartbreak the problem is that she does not lose her baby she gives birth to a stillborn which is even worse because she has to yeah, go through the uh, whole yeah. process of giving birth to a stillborn baby which is yeah tragic to the nth degree, it's just really heavy stuff. Yeah. And you said yeah. fuck you many times because, like, oh my god, grand- grandpa dies, then then grandma dies, then oh, no, no, the, Casey no, no, the dies. Dog, the the dog dies. The so dog, the dog dies. dies, which isn't in the film. Um, there's you know the dog the dog isn't in the movie, but the dog is very very like like almost like quite a semi important like character in the book for the first like before it dies it's like a, it's there almost yeah and then it dies in this really horrific manner we're getting run over by a car where steinberg you know really drives home what goes on then grandpa dies like 10 pages later which in the film it was just like oh yeah he's put onto the he's put onto the truck he's then taken off of the truck and then literally cut to he's dead we're, we're burying him um then you have grandma dying and then um noah goes then connie goes no connie goes then noah goes no i think noah goes first noah goes then connie yeah yeah okay and then um casey gets killed and that leads on to what happens with tom yeah. Um, Al gets Al gets ma- obviously gets married, but he falls for a woman, and he's like, you know, he wants to settle down with a woman. John's going towards alcohol. He's, you know, he's drinking himself to death. Yep. Par is just going through the motions at this point. 
Yeah. And Mar is, you know... Just trying to hold it all together. Trying to hold it all together. Um... Anyway, right, so... <laughs> the The message of the film... Almost... I don't want to say removes the socialist element, 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 element. The big things in the book is being called a red. Is, and that the implications there is obviously, you know, 30s, red, communist, you know, it's bad to be a socialist. Um... But what the book does, what the book very, very cleverly does, is it identifies that anybody that disagrees with the capitalist um, machinations of what's going on in America at that time, no matter how hard it was on the people that are being affected by that and how much of an injustice it is and how wrong it is, it identifies that anybody that disagrees with it, you know, is, is a red, red. Is, a, is, is immediately a red, is immediately against the, but it's you know, not, the I, idea... Let me just um, interfere just for a bit. Um, I think the problem is that, and the, the book does it really well, I think they couldn't have gone, gone away with doing that in the, in the movie anyway. No, no, no. It's just basically, it's not, you're a red if you want a fair pay so you can make your food money. So basically you can put bread on the table. So basically the only thing, that you're a red because you want to feed your children. And, yeah. So, because there's live. so many, pe- yeah, if you want to live, because so many people go west during the Great Depression and they look for work because they can't, they've been dispossessed, they, the farms have been taken by the banks, they have nothing, like literally nothing, they put everything on a jalopy and like mattresses, kettles, pots, pans, boxes and whatnot. And they go west looking for work, and then there's six thousands of them. And because they they have the speculators, right? And they were like, well, if you don't want to work for two cents a uh, two two and a half cents a box of peaches, which is like taking two hours to fill, two two cents for an hour, then you're a red. And then at the end yeah. of the day, you make a dollar, and with that dollar, you have to feed eight people, and you can barely feed eight people with a with a dollar. And then if you're complaining, you're a red. This is what got me so mad at reading the book. I was just like, how is it possible? And apparently, that's what people did. And when when you say did, it's what people do to to this day. Yes, and it's, this isn't this isn't this is right. So this is this is kind of one of those things where you couldn't fucking make it up if you tried so we are today on the 28th of may um saturday 28th of may uh 11 discussing grapes of wrath we have spent me and danny have spent the last week discussing grapes of wrath the book not the film because obviously that's the whole thing of the podcast you talk about the film first watch the book on the other hand we've been talking about the themes and stuff for a good few days 20 i get sent a me- i get sent a message by danny on the article from the Guardian on the twenty seventh of May, twenty twenty two. This is yesterday at eight o'clock in the morning, where an investigation. So this is the headline: Migrant fruit pickers charge thousands in illegal fees to work in on UK farms. Investigation shows evidence appears to show illicit payments taken from workers harvesting produce for M and S, Tesco, and Waitrose. Now this is a story which 
I couldn't fucking believe it as I was reading it because it's about this Nepal these Nepalese workers who are coming over to work in this country to earn money to basically put food on our tables and they are being exploited and having to pay more than one in one case over three thousand pounds to recruitment agencies yeah, yeah. to basically come over here and it's it's exploitation that it's almost a third of what these people are earning during their six month post and it is absolutely abhorrent and what if you read into if you read into what the article's talking about it basically suggests that the the process and the um the scheme that's been put forward by our fucking government have basically is almost rife with is is almost like it's the perfect conditions to exploit and yeah. take money away from the people that need it now i don't want to get into a whole thing about our government and the brexit thing because this is all interleaked with with this yes but one of the things that this country and America and I think Australia, 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 Australia well, um, Canada to a lesser extent, although there's that whole you know trucker thing that's going on over there, but um, is the the exploitation and the treatment of immigrants, of migrants that come in over this country to work to make a living, and the attitudes put towards these people who just want to live and over here you are read you're being subjected to certain members of the media and certain members of our government that these people are dirty the, the language used is othering it's it's yeah. a term used it's a term uh First point, point uh, one of the first time point by Edward Said in Orientalism, and these people yes. are othered, and where it's like we aren't allowed, you're, you're not allowed to think of these people on the same level as yourself, and this is the thing, or this is linked to what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment, as 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 horrible as what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment, the. <laughs> The uh, media, um, especially the media, and the way some of our, the people are talking as well, is almost just like, I can't believe this is happening in Ukraine. I can't believe it's happening to these people, to Europeans. And they think, oh, hang on a minute. This has been going on in Syria for years. Yeah, but, you know? that, it's, yeah. but that doesn't matter. I mean, there was no. a, there was a member, member of our government that even came out and said, I can't believe this this is happening in Europe. This is the kind of thing that only happens in the Middle East, in Africa. And you're thinking, Jesus fucking Christ. Because, um, yeah. Because these people are are, are not... that They just want to live. And yet we, yeah. we as, as a society and as... As a as a people, we are exploiting the people in need to further our own gains. And this is and something well, that... that Go on, go on. Well, and while this is happening, um, during the last what ten, twelve years since we've been under conservative yeah. rule, we went from twenty nine billionaires to one hundred and seventy seven billionaires. Yeah, as and you, the twenty 
top rich list has yep. been published by the Times, the Sunday Times, um, just last week, yep. I think. Uh, food banks, uh, which were almost non-existent in 2009, you now have them in every single shop that you go into. Um, yep. The... I mean, this is. I mean, this is away from what's happening with the migrants. But you just look at people, the working class, and and the lower, you know, lower classes in this country. You know, people that, you know, and it it's it's. You think in twenty twenty two, we would have moved past this? No, no. And then you read, you read. You read what happened, you know, you read Groups of Wrath, which came out in 1939 about events that took place a few years previous with the Groups of Wrath, which was filmed in 1940, which, you know, the adaptation of the book, it's kind of visualizing these things. This is the thing that was for for everybody was almost like consigned to the depths of history. It's like this was caused by the sheer um, greed and um, what's the word like freak nature of what happened with the wall street crash you know the wall street crash would never happen again well it happened again in the 80s we had we had the housing crisis in 2008 yeah um and we aren't learning our lessons no because we don't pay attention to history that's why we don't pay attention no we don't pay attention to history so i i'm so what what the film does is it almost removes that it removes that socialist element almost there is a, yeah. there is a bit in it where at the end where tom's like i'm going to fight for the working man but the way it's put across is the way that you see what happens in america with the republicans and how the the people who support the republicans almost talk about themselves and their yeah. party is that they're protecting the American way of life and what is right for them, despite the fact that they are they are completely oblivious or ignorant to the fact that they are themselves being exploited. And this is how the film comes across. If I was being critical of the film, they would they would they would they would and I think that a lot of that is to do with the fact that John Ford and Daryl Sanuk produced and directed it. I think if you had a director <laughs> which probably would never have happened in the 30s and 40s because of the whole Red Scare shit. If you, had a, if you even had a director with a, a socialist message at the time, the film wouldn't have been made. The film, you know, you, if you would like wanted to, to, to put towards that message, it wouldn't have been made. And I think if the film was made today, you would need a director like Ken Loach, for fuck's sake. Yeah. However... And Ken Loach has been... Yeah. Um, so, right. I, I, I'm trying really hard. We're trying really, really hard not to go over things like this. <laughs> I think but, we've crossed right, that line now. <laughs> I think that's crossed. So, can, should we talk about the film? I'm going to talk about the film in, in, in the, in the film as a film. Um, I've gone over the performances. I've gone over what it means for the story, the plot. is adapt- an adaptation of the book. Direction, John Ford. You know, you can't ask better at the time, really, for a, a story of, of, about America. John Ford is your guy. That's the person you go to. Politics yep. or not, that's the person you go to. Cinematography. Oh, yeah. 
Um, I, I don't know. Who I, was that I, guy? I, I've I, never heard of him. <laughs> I missed. I missed because I was making a cup of tea as the credits. You missed the, the credits again. I missed the credits at the beginning. I always have this tendency to missing the credits. And I was like watching the film thinking, was like, oh, this that's is Greg. really, this is really greatly shot. This is, this is, Greg, what is this? It's Greg Lee. It's a Greg Lee. I was like, what, is, Greg. what is this? And it's Greg Toland. Um, I had to like, I had to like look at it up like halfway through and I was like, is it, uh-huh. is it him? And it was. It, it's a Greg Toland film and Jesus fucking Christ, it's fucking amazing to look at. Um, Those faces and the light and the shadow is just, it's, it's you very get, beautiful. You get the, the so the, the way Steinbeck describes his characters in the book, you feel you can feel it. I mean, you're not touching these people's faces, but you can feel their yeah. these people's faces and how they feel. And Toland somehow manages to create that texture. Yeah. Um, and it's not just, and it, it's just. Yeah, it's it's really quite something. The, the, it's really interesting because the whole sequence leading up to the beginning where they're going up to the farm, that's taking place on a soundstage. You can tell. You, I, yeah. I was watching that and I was like, that's on a soundstage. The rest of the film, I couldn't tell what was on the soundstage and what was shown on location. And a lot of that was to do with the lighting. The The way, the way I kind of figured out that thing was taking place on a soundstage was the way the sky was in the background and yeah. the sound design of their conversations almost echoes like it was in a warehouse. And obviously that wasn't the intent. The intent was it's echoing because it's an empty wasteland that's, you know, barren. Um, the rest of the film, on the other hand, like, you know, you couldn't tell what was on the soundstage and what wasn't because of, of primarily of how it was, how it was lit. Um, yeah, no, it was that was that was that was something. That was really something. It's our fifth. No, it's our one, two, third. It's our third Greg Toland movie on the podcast. My fifth well, overall. Um, he was very yeah. good. I seen it. Yeah, so Grapes of Wrath as a film is one of the best films ever made. As a as a as a film. As an adaptation of the book, I mean, I, I rated the film five stars on Letterbox because I couldn't really think of any best way to kind of put this as towards a film. Because at the end of the day, my Letterbox is, this is a film, you know, you, I'm looking at it as a film. If I was to look at this as in terms of an adaptation of a book, I would struggle to be as praiseworthy of it because of what the book does that the film doesn't. Um, and a lot of that is to do with the political messages of the book. And I've, I've said this for years. I've said this for years. I think, I think in this age, media train, media studies needs to be a mandatory subject. Yes. And the reason why I'm saying that is because when I was at school, English was the mandatory subject and I had to read of Mice and Men and it was looking at the world through a different lens. But it was understanding how the language and how the descriptions and how the plot kind of, you know, kind of create this idea 
Media Studies does the same thing, but with visual and written media. And in an age where we are subjected to it constantly, we are seeing this illiteracy yes. everywhere. The media illiteracy, not literacy, the media Ill- illiteracy is everywhere because people do not know how to read media. They know how to read a book, but they don't know how to read media. And I, th- I think, I think if you know if that was to happen more, which it won't under this current government, I think we would start to see something in the you know the idea of change. But at the end of the day, that's not in the interests of the people in power. So, which is linked to what happened in Groups of Wrath, where the people in power aren't interested. Um, yes. And there is a there is an interesting connection between this and the other movie, in that the other movie one of the characters wants to write a letter to Frank, uh, because Frank says we've got to look out for everybody, and look out for a fellow man, and you don't see that in Grapes of Wrath, and only only really in the government camp where you see that, but it's almost it's framed as in. This is wrong because it's socialist. You know. Um anyway. But I, I we could go around in circles. This is this is this was gonna be always gonna be a very, very hard episode to record, um, just due to the heavy themes that being being covered. So I'm gonna I'm gonna um put down my I'm gonna step off my soapbox okay. and let Danny ta- and let and let Danny take over. Okay, cool. Okay, so um, that was heavy. I I have to agree with you on some points that you've mentioned and disagree with you on some other points that you've mentioned. Um, I think the word socialist messages, I think the book is maybe uh, having the socialist messages, but also I think it, it points to the lack of humanity that, that took place during the Great Depression. So it can be... A, a study on anthropology more 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 than anything else, because okay. when people have, you know, because in the book that you always have those side characters that go, I have to look after my and my own, I have to look after mine and my own, and you you kind of understand where they're coming from because everybody's kind of in the same desperate situation where no one has enough money except for the people at the top. So they will always look to speculate and to not, yeah, maybe exploit the, the the really desperate ones. But there's there is a very yeah conservative approach to that. But I think I I think there's a balance between being a socialist message and and being more like a humanitarian message. It's like you have to think of how miserable people were, and it's. It's very realistic the way it's portrayed, and I think you're right that it it just the the film had to to tone it down a bit because if you think about how bleak and how difficult the book is to read, you couldn't put that on a film and expect people to to, to flock to it because it was it was going to be too depressing. I mean, they were just coming out of the Great Depression and they probably didn't want to have all that. And with the war in Europe, because the war wasn't actually um, on the doorstep just yet, 
they probably didn't want to have so many like depressing notes in in the film. As for the the ending, I mean, you couldn't film that ending the no, way it was done in the book. You know, Rosa Sharon Rosa Sharon loses the baby, and they find refuge from the floods in a barn where they find a dying man. He's dying of starvation, and Rosa Sharon decides to feed him with the milk from her breast that she still had. You couldn't do that in 1940 in, in, in Hollywood. I, I doubt you could do, do it, it now. Now, now. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to say, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I found it strange. I mean, I had a bit of a look to see exactly if John Ford was indeed a conservative. I don't know about Derek Zanuck. Where did you find out that Zanuck was the conservative? Republican? I read it somewhere. Mm. Um, not in research for this. I was looking at something else. I remember looking at something else and I read that Zanuck was a Republican. I knew okay. that John Ford was as well. So Well, it's I think it's slightly more complicated than that. And let me um, expand on it. I had a quick look. And I found this article from LA Times, which I will link to it in the show notes, that sort of describes what, sort of put some quotes into um, context. I think John Ford was a bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for? I think he was liberal at heart, but I think he was trying to cover his ass when he he became a Republican. I don't think he was a he was a conservative. He was a of Irish descent, and some of his actions indicate that he was more more left leaning than right. Um, I don't th- I really don't think that a staunch conservative could have been could have had the sensibility to portray the plight of the Jode family, in in the same way that he did. I mean, I'm not a massive Ford fan, but his talent as a director, like you said, in contribution and his contribution to cinema, cannot be ignored. He's very good. And he's won yeah. the Oscar for Best Director that year. Um, John Steinbeck was very happy with Henry Fonda's performance as Tom Joad, feeling that he perfectly encapsulated everything he wanted to convey with the character. So, yeah, and then they became really good friends That um, to the point that when John Steinbeck died, Fonda did a reading at his funeral. And... Henry Fonda was still struggling to become a big Hollywood bankable star at the time. So, but he was he was trying to avoid signing a contract with one particular studio because he didn't he wanted to be more independent and having having the ability to choose his own pro projects. So, Daryl Zanuck from Twenty Century Fox, he took advantage of him, of Fonda wanting so bad to play Tom Joad that he forced him to sign a contract for seven years because they both knew that Harry Fonda was going to be the the star of the film and potentially earn an Oscar nomination, which he did. And it was a star-making role and he kind of, it kind of made him a household name. Unfortunately, and this is this is quite this is quite maybe controversial, but in 1940, lifelong friends 
Henry Fonda and James Stewart were both nominated for Best Actor Oscars. Henry Fonda wasn't nominated for um, Grapes of Wrath, and James Stewart was nominated for The Philadelphia Story. Um, James Stewart won, and I think that he should have he shouldn't have won. I think looking back. Fonda's performance as Tom George stands at the test of time much better than Stewart's performance uh, in the Philadelphia story. And it's a bit sad because Harry Fonda was always rather frustrated that he'd never won an Oscar. Oh, he did eventually, but he it was very, very late. So he was first nominated for this role in 1940 and then next nominated. So he still holds a record between, like, the longest time between two nominations. So he's first nominated for Grapes of Wrath and secondly, he was nominated for On Golden Pond, for which he won. As you know, I'm a big, big Jane Fonda fan. Jane Fonda produced that film and she she produced it for her dad. And she so so he didn't get nominated for Twelve Angry Men. He was not. He was nominated Clementine. for nope, nope, or nope, once, nope. Up, once upon a time in the West. That's insane. Nope, nope. Um, I think he was nominated for production for Twelve Angry Men because he produced that film, but he was not nominated for actor. That's insane. Yes, and um, so Jane Fonda knew that if she got Henry to play um, Norman uh, Thayer in On Golden Pound, he might win that Oscar that he wanted. Um, just a quick um, context. Jane Fonda, at the time, she was two-time Oscar winner. She won for Clute in 1971 and for Coming Home in 1978. And he, I think he was very frustrated that him, with 40 years of experience in, in the industry, not didn't have an Oscar and his kid, his, his daughter has two. Um, he was not a very good dad. So, um, you have that for going for him. So Jane Fonda, even to this day says that one of her biggest achievements in life was managing to produce on golden pond for her dad and winning him the much coveted Oscar. Incidentally, Jane, um, J um, Henry Fonda and James Stewart were lifelong friends that who had a fallout in late 40s, early 50s because James Stewart was working with the FBI during the Red Scare and Jane, uh, Fonda was quite leftist, quite liberal. Yeah. So they, um, but because they were, they were best friends from like early in their early 20s they worked together they they worked together on stage and they sort of became really good friends and john um so henry fonda was briefly married to margaret sullivan who was whom we had on the podcast in um the shop around the corner if you remember with james stewart and apparently yes. james stewart has always had a soft spot for her but because she preferred henry um, he he never because he was really good friends with Henry. She um, she chose uh, Henry, so he, James uh, James Stewart was sort of had to back down kind of thing. But it's 
yeah, it's it's a beautiful friendship that kind of had its ups and downs because James Stewart wasn't a conservative and he was always very like Republican American and but yeah, John Ford he he was um in he was investigated during the Red Scare by the Congress for alleged pro-communist leanings because of this film. Um, but yeah, he's been labeled a conservative by many film historians, but um, I will link to the, um, to the article that I was referring to earlier in the show notes to say that he was rather, he was very evasive when asked what party he was leaning to. But he, I think he was, he became a Republican when he was kind of left with no coverage. And when he was investigated, he was like, well, I'm not, I'm not a commie, I'm not, you was a red, I'm not a red, what's a red? Um, so he kind of went and um, sort of affiliated himself with people who could who could sort of help him out and not put him on the spot and, and be investigated. Although when the first Red Scare started, he and John Houston were were trying to stop it they were trying to be like well why are you doing this because it's it's an american to start to investigate people like that because they're supposed to be free to do whatever they wanted anyway um i think there's a there's there's a lot in both the film and the book to be discussed i'm sure somebody's done it like like a, a massive discussion about the differences and you know especially with the book in, in particular about the political and and yeah anthropomorphic I can't say it anthropological yeah um, yeah you know that it's <laughs> I think yeah I think it's a beautiful film um incredibly shot by Greg Toland like we've discussed incredibly directed incredibly acted like Jane Dar- um Darwell is won the Oscar for best supporting actress and she rightfully so because she was basically incredible and you just wanted to give her a hug because she was quintessential ma trying to keep everything together to the nth degree um so yeah, I think it's a really, really good film. But yeah, like you said, you can't really compare it to the book because if if the book if the film would have been a hundred percent faithful to the book, I think people would have just slit their wrist right there and then. And like what what's there to live for when you see the ugly side of, of, of America in the during the Great Depression. And suspicion yeah. and, and, and sort of fighting against each other and speculating and basically starving people to death. And I think you, you I, I'm sure you, um, you wanted to mention how great John Carradine's performance was as well as John Casey, the preacher. And yeah, no, I, how... it, it out of the performances in the in in the film, the one that read the most, like the character, the actor that played him was John Carradine. Like I didn't, I didn't read Tom Joe thinking, oh yeah, this is Henry Fonda, but I did read. You know, I was reading, I, I read Casey, and then when I saw Casey, who Casey played and, and the performance of John Carradine, I was like, that is like perfect casting. Yes. I, I couldn't think of, you know, couldn't yeah. think of anything better. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, just a final note for me. Um, uh, obviously, they couldn't show people, they couldn't show women pe- being pregnant. So they had to pretend that she was pregnant when she was not visibly pregnant. And if you remember in the book, when Tom George comes home and sees Rosa Sharon, he's like, oh, I see you've been busy. Um, they couldn't actually say that out loud in the film. So they changed the, the line to, oh, I'll see, I'm going to be an uncle soon. Which is like, what? She's not got, she. there's no baby bump there. What are you talking about? Yeah. I think, yeah, uh, I think unless you, I think, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, we, we've spoken yeah, about that in the past, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we have. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really weird one, but, and I think it's a very fascinating po- period of human history and American history, the, like the, both the Great Depression and, and the production code for film history. And there's a lot to be learned and there's a lot to, to discuss. So, I think we've made a, a a bit of a dent in it and made a quite a good effort and i wanted to say nick that i'm i'm really impressed and happy that you read the book because it's not easy it's not an easy book to read is it <laughs> i mean it was always on my read list anyway like i own the book anyway even well, before well you done. suggested let's 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 do this because, you know, I read of Mice and Men at school and I was like, oh, yeah, Steinbeck, you know, he's one of the great American writers. And I've got a thing about trying to read those kind of those books. I have a more of a I'm more of a fan of of writing from, you know, the great American writers than I am of anything modern day. Um, So, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you, if, you, I mean, if you know anything about me, you'll know that Hunter S. Thompson is one of my favorite writers. And a lot of that is to do with how he talks about America. Yes. Um, you know, a country that fascinates me and seeing, Ste- you know, Steinbeck's writings of it is, you know. I wonder what Steinbeck would have done these days with presenting America, looking at, like you said, looking at the media these days. What, I mean, what I, do you think? I, 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 I mean, the, the one person I wish was alive to see what was going on is Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, I, if any, I know Steinbeck, Steinbeck would have just, I think would have done the same sort of thing. But I think if anybody could have really cut through, um, would have been Hunter. Like, he, yeah. he like, he, I mean, I was, uh, this whole thing on Twitter uh, a while ago, one of the reasons, well, one of the main reasons I left, but there was this whole thing on Twitter where this guy said, oh yeah, Hunter would have loved Trump. And I was like, no, he wouldn't. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Have you read any time? Have you read any of his stuff? He would have fucking hated the prick, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hunter was was a patriot, you know. He died, you know, when he when he died. I I just want to close off on this story because it's kind of linked in with this. But when he died, um, he was his asses were shot out of a cannon to the to the to the sounds of a band playing Star Spangled Banner. Um, he, you know, and there's a whole thing about, you know, Americans of patriotism and stuff. And that's something in this country that struggle with because it's very, very linked to nationalism and it's very, very linked to our treatment of people that aren't British, which is all tied in with our, you know, empire and, you know, rural Britannia and all that bullshit. And, you know, we are, I think because of that and because of what 
goes on in America as well with that, you know, you know, America, you know, all that kind of bullshit. We lose sight of, you know, humanity. We lose sight of what matters. You know, we lose sight of people living, just wanting to survive. It should not um, be a luxury to be able to afford food, should it? No, but it, it turns out like that. I mean, with and central uh, heating to, at the I, I, same I, I, time. I mean, you, you don't let's, have let's to not, choose. Let's, let's, let's not go into that because I've got a whole thing <laughs> yeah. and I don't want to get into okay. it. I want to move on. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just I just want to cut because we could go on for ages, and I don't want to because we've got a great film coming up next. All I think is a great film. Thankfully, and I want to talk about yes. it. Yes, let's do that. Let's talk. Okay, about it. let's move on. Let's move yes. on. Let's move on. So, said great movie is 1973's Paper Moon, directed by the late Peter Bogdanovich. This film stars Ryan O'Neill and his daughter Tatum O'Neill. Uh, Madeline Kahn is also there in in her second film role, I think. Um, so, brief synopsis: During the Great Depression, uh, there's your there's your there's your theme, united theme between the two movies. During the Great Depression, a con man finds himself saddled with a young girl who may or may not be his daughter, and the two forge an unlikely partnership. So, Danny, I am right in thinking that you saw this for the first time in thirty five millimeter. Correct. How 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 was it? How did you find Paper Can Moon? I, how smug do you want me to be? Oh, just... <laughs> yeah, right. Listen, it's just... It was delightful. It was one of those really, really adorable performances and adorable experiences. And if it hadn't been for this movie, this podcast episode would be depressing AF because we spent about an hour now talking about depression and and people's rights and, you know horrible and heavy stuff and thankfully we have this film this gem of a film uh which is light and funny and adorable and you just want to you know give it a hug and and cuddle it and, and protect it and i know i want to take Addie in my arms and just give her a big cuddle um and i'm going to say what i said before that all the films on the post should be seen on the big screen and um in 35 millimeters if possible and yeah, so this is me being really smug because I was able to do that at the Prince Charles Cinema and I'm very, very lucky to live in what I think is still one of the greatest cities in the world. Yeah. So, Paper Moon. I think it's just delightful. I am really, really happy that after such a depressing conversation, we we have this to focus on for a bit. I think... You know, Tatum O'Neill, how adorable is she? And Madeline Kahn, she's just, she's always a win for me. I love her so much. I think, yeah, I've, I've known Madeline Kahn from all those Mel Brooks movies, and she's so funny and she's just so talented and she can sing as well, like not, nobody's business. Um, but yeah, Tatum O'Neill, I think, why did they give her Best Supporting Actress when she was the one? sort of carrying the whole picture uh, it's 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 an oscar thing isn't it <laughs> it's just she's perfect she's just so intelligent and and funny and adorable and just so like but at the same time she's a child and you see her being a child and you forget how intelligent children can be 
Well, it, it, I mean, I, we could I, we could talk about it a little bit more, but this is kind of linked in with that. So, best actress in nineteen seventy four. Um, so it was won by Glenda Jackson for A Touch of Class. But this is where it goes. This is the interesting bit. So Ellen Bernstein was nominated for her role as Chris McNeil in The Exorcist. Best Supporting Actress, Linda Blair, was also nominated for her performance as Reagan McNeil in The Exorcist. Another child performance, which is arguably the central performance in a movie. So it's clearly it's clearly the this 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 oh we can't give a child a best actress because Why not? Ray, arguably Linda Linda Blair and Tatum O'Neill are you know are the you know main yeah. performances the main both performances. of them in both both of them were were the main performances and yet both of them were were, were nominated with with Tatum O'Neill winning so. It's it's yeah. Anyway, let's, let's let's move on from that. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. It was it was a beautiful journey that film. It's it's like a road movie, but with a twist, isn't it? It's just it's got everything to to it. You know, you have a bit of a touch of great, the Great Depression in in the background because you you know there's people who have no money, and you see that firsthand, and you see how they're trying to make ends meet. But then you also have people with money and people trying to exploit other people but it's it's always it's it's almost like a victimless crime what they're doing with the bible cells because they they're yeah. speculators but they're also you see her kind of putting her foot down it's like well these people have no money why should we try to steal from them and you you see her sort of fast thinking when you know you open the door and there's this really super rich woman and like oh yeah 24 25 dollar for a bible yeah don't mind if i do thanks very much and you're like what um so yeah i really liked it and um i liked the dynamic between her and ryan o'neill and i think he he played it really well as well like playing against her although he's kind of a cad and you want to punch him sometimes <laughs> Yeah, I I did like the um sorry I forgot her name of the um of the other actress who was playing the maid. She was she was really funny too, and the uh, trick they had, trick. No, Lee, uh, not Leroy. What's her name? Um, Imogen was it Imogen? Yeah. Yeah. P uh, P J Johnson. Was... Yeah. P J Johnson. P J Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It was it was a delightful film. Exquisitely directed. And yeah, seeing it, seeing it in thirty-five millimeters, it was just really, really beautiful. And uh, it felt like it was made. It was made in nineteen thirty-three. Very playful. Um, I loved the pacing. It was really, really good. The close-ups of of little Addie, and you know, is really, really adorable. And I loved. I mean, you you kind of see towards the end what what she's put in the envelope before he sees and you see that it's a photo of her on the paper moon without him and it kind of makes you want to tear up and like come on how could you leave her behind this little adorable joyous creature who can save who saves your ass oh it's just such a yeah such a good change from the really really horrible 
depression of the yeah. Great Depression. So yeah, I really liked it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw this movie a couple of years ago, and uh, yeah, it's also I have to I've, give kudos yeah. to the hats and the and the ribbons. The hats she, and the ribbon, she, yeah. She's wearing the best hats and ribbons. Well, there's one hat and a couple of ribbons, and she's just really cute. Because <laughs> the, the, the gag is like, she she is she a girl or a boy? So I love that gag. It's like she's really getting like really frustrated because people assume that she's a boy, so she has to wear ribbons. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, I I I really really love this movie. I saw this and um. The last picture show back to back, uh, Bogdanovich's two black and white movies he did in mm-hmm. the seventies, um, and last picture show is is incredible. I would love to have it for next season some way. Um, I've it's, it's, seen it's, it. You've seen it? Okay, right. Don't worry about it then. But that that movie is in, in, incredible, and um, Paper Moon is kind of carries on from that. Um. So, I actually loved it better than um, Last Picture Show. I couldn't, I was really upset with, um, I didn't like Sybil Shepherd's character at all. I thought she was such a bitch. Anyway, Paper Moon. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Last Picture Show is very much, it very much follows along the same lines as something as of uh, uh, like a film like American Graffiti or or, uh, Days and Confused, where it's kind of capturing that sense of, moving from one era to the other um it's a really really yeah i find that really really interesting um but anyway paper moon um any, any more thoughts um no it's just really i i really liked it there's nothing to say except that it's just a very delightful film and i don't if i hope i never meet anybody who watched it and didn't like it because it means that you have no sense of humor and no sense of humanity and you don't understand children um okay so the film was actually originally meant to be a john houston picture um and was meant to star paul newman and it was meant to be star his daughter paul newman and his daughter nell potts um but houston left the project for whatever reason and then the newmans were like oh no we're not gonna do it um bogdanovich was uh he just completed what's up doc um, and he kind of was looking for another project, and his wife, ex-wife at the time, Polly Platt, kind of recommended filming the script um, done by Joe David Brown, uh, which was adapted from the novel Addie Prey. Um, he was Bogdanovich, you know, he's a fan of the period films, and he had two young daughters of his own, and he was like, oh, "Okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna do this." Um, he worked with Ryan O'Neill on What's Up Doc, and decided to cast him and. Um, and Tatum O'Neill, um, despite the fact that Tatum was eight eight at the time of audition, she had no acting experience. Um, in in the book, Addie's Addie was twelve, and uh, it was that was changed to, to nine, and they were kind of they moved things around, you know, adapt, adaptation all this kind of stuff. Um, so the filming was obviously took place in around Kansas and St. Joseph, Missouri. I think the location shooting in this is, is incredible. Yeah. Um, and especially with the, 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 the cars that they drive as well. Um, there's that whole 
feel to it. it it just feels like you said like out of out of this era um the dop laszlo kovacs um he was a dop on the movie uh he used a red filter on the camera on the advice of one orson wells oh um and if you know anything all, about Peter Bordanovich, you know that he was good friends. All roads to Rome, right? <laughs> he was he was very very good friends with Orson Welles. Now there is a fantastic interview that John Watts, director of the the Spider Man movies, the you know the new ones with Tom Holland, and he directed another movie called Cop Car. He did an interview with Peter Bogdanovich uh, that was included in Empire magazine and. After Bogdanovich passed away, they 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 got it on their website. So I'm going to link to this in the show notes because it's an amazing amazing interview. And uh, Bogdanovich also has a YouTube channel. He had a YouTube channel where he uh, posted up old videos of himself introducing movies. Um, uh, there's like loads of like him talking about like Lubitsch movies, and um, it's it's great. It's a great YouTube channel. I'll link to that as well because it's. He's one of these people like when some people talk about movies, you kind of switch off, but then like. Like Tarantino, I find like really grates on me sometimes the way he the way he talks about some like where he talks about films. It kind of kind of it's like this. Oh, okay, yes, we get it. You're enthusiastic. Um, Edgar <laughs> Wright was sort of going that way, but he's kind of like ever since he's taken over this position at the BFI, he's kind of come back away from that Tarantino attitude. Yeah. Um, but whereas like people like like Del Toro, Guillermo Del Toro, like, I could listen to Del Toro talk about movies like you know, all the time that way. I, I just love, I you know, just love hearing him talk about it. And Peter Bogdanovich is the same. And when he talks about like, Oh, I was just chatting to Orson Welles. You're like, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> like it doesn't come across as like a humble brag or anything. It's just like, yeah, I know. I was, I was friends with Orson. Like, but what of it? <laughs> like it doesn't, mm. you know, it doesn't come across like a humble brag. So the title, so the book, like I said, was called Addie Prey. Now, the title of the film is Paper Moon. Um, and in this interview, Watts asks him, how did you come up with the title? Bob Branovich says, whenever I do a period picture, I look at what songs were popular in the period. The movie was set in 1935, and as I was looking at the list, I saw a song called It's Only a Paper Moon. For some reason, those two words jump out at me, and the song kind of goes with the story. Um, he said to the studio, I want to call the picture Paper Moon. They asked why. It's a good title, don't you think? No. Frank Yablans, who was then Paramount Pre- uh, Pictures president, he said, the book is a bestseller, Peter, and it was called Addie Prey. I said, how many copies did it sell? 100,000. Gee, if we get 100,000 people, that's not a big movie. Okay, okay. So he said, let's not get into a beef. Let's just call it Addie Prey and walk away. So I called Orson Welles, who was in Rome. <laughs> This was in 1972. I called him long distance. It was a very bad connection. Can you hear me? Barely. What do you want? I'm cutting. I said, can you just take a minute? Tell me what you think of this title. Paper Moon. Short pause. That title is so good. You don't even need to make a picture. Just release the title. (laughs) 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 Um... Yeah, and they had to. They had to literally that that shot of um, Addy in, in front of the paper in front of the paper moon. So Bogdanovich he called Alvin Sargent, his screenwriter, and he said, "You know that carnival scene you've got? Let's put a cardboard moon in there so we can take our picture." He said, "Why?" I said, "So we can call the fucking thing Paper Moon, and the studio won't ask why." At that point, we didn't know how we were going to make pay the po- <laughs> photograph off at the end. We didn't actually have an ending, even as far as halfway through the halfway through the shoot. Um. Yeah, I, I I just 
the, the, this 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 whole thing, this whole interview is just amazing. Just hearing him talking about like this this talking about this movie, him, you know, like finding Madeline Khan, who he worked with on on What's Up Doc. Um, yeah. Uh, so they wanted to make a sequel to Paper Moon because, of course, they did. Of course, they um, did. They wanted they wanted to call it Harvest Moon, and they didn't. <laughs> oh dear um, God. Yeah. <laughs> So um, apparently that was meant to include, it was meant to be like a scam of an old lady, which was meant to have been like, you know, the second half of the book. Uh, Bartanovich didn't want to do it, but they ended up doing a TV show. Um, do you know who played the role of Addie Loggins in the TV show? I can't think. Uh, so this is 1974, uh, premiered on ABC. Um, a very young Jodie Foster was cast as Addie. Of course. Um, the series was not a rating success and it was cancelled in January 1975. Um, yeah, so, so that yeah, one, not surprised. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, this this whole thing about uh, shooting the movie, like um, you know that scene where they're they're sat in they, she's sat in all those boxes and they go around the on the car and the thing like looks like it's gonna fall off. Well, yep. it actually actually almost did uh like they had to like nail the boxes down and that that scream that you hear was actually a genuine like scream from her oh um yeah he also he shot he shot the he hated shooting the movie um so much that he came in four days under schedule um he was not happy so he came in under schedule and he didn't like shooting it um but you wouldn't know it you wouldn't know it from from the from the film like it, it just looks amazing um there's a long shot where Ryan and Tatum are talking in the car. Um that took them two days to shoot because they had to do it twenty-five they tried to do it twenty-five times in the first day because like Tatum kept kind of fucking up. You know, they would get ten or five lines into it and Tatum would fuck up and they'd have to all go away, turn around and come back again. Um Yeah. it's uh like I said, I'll link to that in the show notes. It's a really, really interesting uh interesting uh thing uh he was asked uh, how did you work with tatum o'neill and paper moon he replies with great difficulty <laughs> oh well she was a um, child so yeah but she did yeah I mean- so um he was asked did you have to overcome some difficulty with her father this is in uh cinephilia beyond um which is a great website the film stuff and then he replies, uh, Jesus, no, I had to keep Ryan from killing her. God damn it, Tatum, would you learn your lines? God damn it, I'm not going to do it again with her. Shit, we've done it 28 times. Get the rhymes like Tatum. Peter, I can't do it again. I did paint and place 5,000 times. I never went through anything like this. Um, yeah, so this kind of links in with the fact that Tatum growing up didn't have a good relationship with Ryan um oh they ended up very very estranged um so much so that there was a so there was a like a tv like oprah winfrey network special called ryan and tatum the o'neills mm-hmm. um where it was about their relationship and their reunion after 25 years um and it didn't didn't take uh he was uh, he was asked in he was asked in in 2009 
about it and he said he blames Oprah Winfrey for further distancing from Tatum alluding to Roper's lack of support by stating we're further apart now than we were started when we were when we started the show so thanks Oprah for all your help wow um he says uh he said um he did not foresee a second season adding did I open up I tried does Tatum like me any better no so what's the point um hmm. It's really, really quite heartbreaking. Uh, Tatum herself, she, um, she was, she won an Oscar. She became the youngest person ever to win a competitive Academy Award, winning at the age of ten. Um, she won. She was in the Bad News Bears, uh, nineteen seventy-six one Nickelodeon. She was in Little Darlings. She had some bit roles in uh, Sex in the City, Eight Simple Rules, Law and Order, Criminal Intent. Um, but she struggled with. Um, yeah, romantic relationship. She had a relationship with uh, she. Had, her first public boyfriend was uh, Michael Jackson. Really, uh, in the late seventies. Um, and I, I uh, thought then she, she was had, married. Wasn't she married to John McEnroe, the tennis player? I was just going to say she was uh, married to John McEnroe in the eighties. They had three children. Uh, they separated in nineteen ninety two and divorced in ninety four. Following divorce, O'Neill's drug problems reemerged, and she developed an addiction to heroin. As a result, McEnroe obtained custody of the children in 1998. Um, She was arrested in 2008 for buying crack cocaine. Um, And she's, you know, been... She's not doing great. Oh, dear. Uh, Last last I read. Yeah, it it links in with that whole Hollywood child stars. um, Yeah. But, yeah... um, the movie itself is, I I love it. I love it so much. It's so good. It is very um, good. It's it's so good. It's so delightful. It's just wonderful to watch. Um. Yeah, it's it's a it's a delightful film. Delightful film. It's um, so far my favorite. Well, my favorite Bogdanovich film. I've seen picture the last picture show. Uh, I've not seen What's Up, Doc. I've seen the documentary that he did for Buster Keaton, which was also very good. I've I've got I'm I need to go through Bogdanovich's work like properly because like he he's had a, he had a really interesting career. So like in the seventies, like he started off working for Roger Corman. Um, same with same like uh, like uh, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola did. You know they started off working for Corman. I uh, did a movie called Targets, which had um, Boris Karloff in it. And then he came off and did um, he did the last picture show. Then he did what's up, Dog. Then he did Paper Moon, and then like he did Nickelodeon, which I mean did did pretty well, but it didn't you know it did all right. And then he just kind of did a load of a bit meh pet films. Um, he did Mask. Um, mm. and he did you know Texasville, and then he did like the Cat's Meow in. 2001 oh i've seen the cat's meow actually um which is because it it deals with with film history so yeah definitely yeah um he did uh the one of the last films he did was a film called she's funny that way in 2014 um which you know it's like it's not it's not a patch on any of his early work. And then, you know, he did, he, he done, he done these documentaries and he's probably became later in his career. He probably became well, more well known for his work along, you know, like talking about old films and restoring old films and all this kind of stuff than he did about the films that he was actually releasing himself. 
like you said, he did that Buster Keaton documentary in 2018. Um, he did perhaps, I think, I think one of the best music documentaries ever made, which is um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers running down a dream. Um, which is this, it is, how long is that? So it's nearly four hours long. It's a four hour long documentary about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And it's fucking amazing. Um, I really, really recommend it. I caught it on BBC two one year, um, not long after it came out. I caught it on BBC two late at night. It was on, started at like two, that started like 10 o'clock at night and it wasn't done until like two o'clock in the morning, but I didn't care because it was all about Tom Petty. Um, <laughs> I didn't know you were such a big Tom Petty fan. Yeah. <laughs> Learn something I, new every day. <laughs> you know, I saw him just before. Oh, that's, that's see you're bragging again. I am bragging, but it's one of those things. So um, I had been just in the same weekend, I had been to a festival and I came back a festival in Lisbon. So I came back on Sunday around three o'clock in the afternoon and I just went home, dropped my bags and went to Hyde Park to see Tom Petty, supported by Stevie Nicks. And um, yeah, this was 2017. So this was July and he died in, I want to say September or October. Yeah, something like, like that. Yeah, I remember that. Only like two months after I'd seen him or so. It was it was quite shocking because I was like, we've just seen him perform. What the hell? So, um, yeah, it was, I am bragging, but it was one of those things like I'm glad that I did it because I wanted to see him live and he was really good. Yeah, he was he was one of these people that I was like, you know, that I was like, oh, I need to need to see him, need to see him live, and I just just never just never happened, just never happened. Um, there's always you know there's always artists like that. I mean, Prince was one of the big ones for me. It was like oh, same. I, to see Prince I, live. I wish I had seen him live. I hadn't, and Linkin Park is another one that I wanted to see live and I never got around to. I had um, I had uh, tickets to go and see Dio um, in Bristol. Actually, I ticket twice. I tickets to go see him. So, I was meant to see him uh, when he was playing as part of Heaven and Hell in Dublin, supporting Iron Maiden. I had tickets to go and see that, and then that gig was postponed. And then mm. I'd get, uh, then I had tickets to go see him solo in Bristol, and then he he was diagnosed with stomach cancer, and then he was like, "No, we're going to do it again. We'll just reschedule when I'm all over and done with with this." And then he passed away the following year. Um. I was never ever got to see Dio live. Uh, I was pretty. That was, that was a big one for me. Um, but yeah. Anyway, anyway. Um, like I said, we'll link. I'll link to that uh, that that interview from the Empire Magazine in the show notes. I'll also link to this YouTube channel that he that he did, which I'm just going through now. So there's him talking about Gary Cooper, John Ford, George Cukor, Elaine May. Um, John Cassavetes, Ingrid Bergman, Howard Hawks, um, Charlie Chaplin, Judy Garland, Frank Capra. You know, there's loads. Of, there's loads of these videos. How many has he got on here? Um, I can't quite see how many videos he's got. It's quite a few. Just anyway. They're all about. Video. Yeah. Yeah, they're all they're all quite a few. It's just him introducing, you know, these people. It's, it's an, there's a Greta Garbo one as well, um, and Ford and Fonda. Um, which I didn't actually notice before I before yes. we recorded. Otherwise, I would they watch that. They had a really good working relationships. Good... 
Yeah, so um, I would have. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich recommends Ford and Fonda, so yeah. I will make sure to watch that. Anyway, I will link to that in the show notes, and and uh, I'll also send you a link, Danny, so you can peruse it at your own time. Thank you. So I'm glad we got to talk about something a bit more positive. Yes, although it has <sighs> a bit of a dark story behind it. Poor Tatum. Yeah. Yeah, poor Tatum. Poor Tatum. But so, yeah. Um, yeah. what have we got on for next week? Um, so next week, next week, next week, what are we looking at? Next week, 1944 Frank Capra film called Arsenic and Old Lace, starring oh. Cary Grant, Priscilla Lane. Mm. Um, Roman Massey w- and Peter Lorre. How would you describe the movie? Oh, um, dark comedy, very dark comedy. Okay, it's yes. kind of got like a, it's kind of got like a, um, I wouldn't say supernatural edge to it, but it isn't it. It's got it's, well. Know, quite... Does it have a supernatural edge to it? No, I don't it know. Does not. Does it? I was asking you. <laughs> No, it does not. Um, no, it's, it... it's 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 taking place around Halloween, and I remember us discussing it for a Halloween special last year. But I can't remember what did what did we end up doing for Halloween last year? We did the Innocence, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah, the Innocence. I think Arsenic and Old Lace. I think you kind of said it. You know, aimed around like dead people and stuff like that. Is that right? Um, no comment. Okay. Right. Well, that was, I'm 99% sure that was what I was given. So the dead film people. that I Yeah, there are, there are dead is... people in it. Okay. Good. Because the film I've paired it with is 1996's The Frighteners, directed by Peter Jackson. Okay. And I'm not going to say who's in work. it. Because I don't know if that's going to work, but we'll see. I, I don't want to say who's in The Frighteners because I'm I want to give look it a surprise. Up. I'm not going to Good, look it because I want it to be a surprise. Um, Good. He he's one of one of the great actors. That yeah. Anyway, we'll get on to that. Anyway, um, that's so it's Peter Jackson. Is it, uh, get to talk about Peter Jackson. Is it Bruce Campbell? No. Okay. No. Right. No. Peter no, it's not. <laughs> I okay. would love to see Peter uh, Peter Jackson do a Bruce Campbell movie. Yeah, this is uh so this is the Peter Jackson movie he did before <laughs> he went off to Middle Earth. Um he's got he's a really, really interesting career. Um he's kind of stopped doing fictional films now. He's done a lot of restoring you know, he did that World War One movie, There Shall Not Grow Old, and then he did the Beatles documentary, which I've not seen. Yeah, I've not seen that. Did either. you see that? No, no, I haven't. But yeah, Peter Jackson's had a really, really interesting career. Anyway, so we'll we'll get on to that next week. So that's next week. Frank Capra, the arsenic, arsenic on old lace, and then Peter Jackson's uh, the Frighteners, which is a really great title. I love that title. Um, so that's next week. Danny, in the meantime, um, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan and my website is Uh I would say you'll be able to find me on Twitter. I still have my account on there, so why not? At Nick S. Chandler, not tweeting because I've got a dissertation to write. 
Um, you can find, I do have an Instagram actually, uh, Nicholas underscore S underscore Chandler, um, which is one person up to photography if you're interested. Uh, my website is superatomovision.com. Um, going to be doing like I did with my um, dissertation on Michael Bay's Transformers movies or Michael Bay. I did like an article per Michael Bay movie, so I'm going to do the same sort of thing with with my dissertation um, this this year, um, which is about uh, Spider-Man multiverses, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, um, if you want to read me, uh, read my work on on that, it's, it's going to be up on there. Um, I need to rewatch Ambulance because that ambulance piece is kicking my ass. I, I don't know how to write about it, so I'm struggling with that. Um, yeah, so that's that. Uh, I said join us next week for, for those movies. Um, I'm rambling, so let's end up. Uh, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. If you believe in me without your love It's a hockey-tock parade without